what are second order energies? They are energies calculated to second order in perturbation theory. Do you think there's a better way than perturbation theory to solve for complex systems? It seems like being forced to constantly add corrections to a theory means we're going about it in an inefficient manner. Um, paraphrasing Occam's razor, all other things being equal, the simplest solution is best. Is there a simpler solution? So in principle, you'd expect that there's some exact solution. So that would be the simplest thing, just find the exact solution, and it would be much simpler. The problem is that it's usually much harder to find the exact solution. So, yeah, we're, go we're going about it in a complicated way because we're not smart enough to do it the right way. That's, that's life. Um, there are other ways that you can try if you need a more accurate answer, people have developed other ways of trying to get approximate answers other than just perturbation theory. But perturbation theory is the easiest. So that's why we're doing it first. Exploiting hermeticity, do we use upper superscripts or lower subscripts? So what did he mean when he said hermeticity? So you have some, the thing he's talking about is some overlap integral between two different wave functions. And it's an inner product, so one of the wave functions has a complex conjugate. He's taking <coughs> the expectation value of some operator. In this particular case, it was the Hamiltonian, which had better be Hermitian because it tells us the energies, which are real numbers that we can measure. So this. In quantum mechanics, this op Hamiltonian has some derivatives of operators, like it has a p-squared term. So there's some derivatives in here that are acting on this wave function. So it's some complicated thing. And yeah, something someone asks you to calculate on an exam, for example. Um, but because this is Hermitian, we know that this integral is equal to this integral. So now the Hamiltonian is just acting on this wave function and then we're complex conjugating. Since this has real eigenvalues, that doesn't matter. So this is what Hermitian means in terms of, of uh, overlap integrals. So in terms of Broquet notation, we're writing that is equal to So this equation is the same as this equation, right? This equation takes less space, so it's quite easy. And Hermitian means that the operator can act on the ket or on the bra. So here it acts on the ket, here it acts on the bra, which is shorthand for this complicated relation. And the point in this case was that uh, this was this psi m wasn't eigenfunction of that particular Hamiltonian. So it's much easier to calculate this one than to calculate this one. Or down here, psi m is an eigenstate of h. That means this just pulls out an energy. So we can do this guy easily. This one would be hard. But they're equal. Perturbation theory used a lot in today's research. Uh, it's used all the time. But as I said, there, if you need more accurate answers, or you have, sometimes there are better ways of doing the problem, depending on what the problem is. Um, why in practice are we satisfied by second order corrections and not higher orders? So that was just a general rule of thumb. Some things have been calculated to 12th order in perturbation theory. It's hard work, so uh, it depends on the particular problem. How hard is it to go to higher order perturbation theory? In some cases, it's really hard. In some cases, it's easier. And how interesting is the answer? Do you really need to know the answer to 12 decimal places? Sometimes you do. 
most of the time you don't. How much more accurate is using second order energies compared to first order? So if our perturbation theory is working, and we're dealing with small corrections, the first order correction is some small thing. The second order correction should be small thing squared. So the first order correction is 10%. That's a one-tenth correction. So the next order should be 1%. It doesn't always work out like that, but that's the rule of thumb again. From the quantum mechanics that we've learned so far, what quantum mechanics do you use in your research? How do you apply it? So a lot of what we do on the fourth floor is uh, requires quantum field theory. So there's an extra level of complication. But some things you still are just the same thing you same things you guys are doing. So all this complicated stuff with spins, remember I told you that was an example of group theory. So we use the same kind of mathematics, the group theory mathematics, to do all kinds of problems in particle physics because uh, dealing with spins is, is using the rotation group. We have other uh, symmetry groups in particle physics, SU3, SU2, or SU5, SO10. We use the same group theory mathematics to deal with those groups as you do with spins. So that's why one reason why learning about spins is useful later on if you ever need to apply symmetry principles to a problem, which you probably will no matter what area of physics you go into. Uh, the other thing we're doing right now, we're looking at a problem about some hypothetical particles that are, could be produced at the LHC. Very complicated thing, but in essence, they form a flux tube between them when you create them. So when you pull them apart, there's the analog of the electromagnetic field is confined in a flux tube, just like in a type 2 superconductor. Magnetic fields are confined in tubes. So this would happen to these hypothetical particles. Space would act like a type 2 superconductor, and their fields are confined in a tube. And so to first approximation, they have a linear potential between them instead of Coulomb potential. So if you want to find out the properties of these things, you need to solve Schrodinger equation for a linear potential. Find the eigenstates. Find the energy levels. And then find out how they decay from one to the other, which is something we'll be doing next month. So all very useful stuff. Uh, can the second order energies be derived for all possible energy states? Or are there some states that do not have second order but do have a first order? How can we see this? So, let's do a simple example. We have a Hamiltonian and there are only three eigenstates. Energy one, energy two, energy three. That's our unperturbed Hamiltonian. Our perturbation Hamiltonian right like that. So this is the perturbation. This is the unperturbed problem. So this is the solved problem. We've diagonalized, and we know the energy eigenvalues. Now we're going to perturb it. So I'm going to write the full Hamiltonian here. So epsilon and delta are some small corrections. So in our perturbation theory, there are overlap integrals well, between m and n that appear. So just by looking at this, the structure of the perturbation, we can see that there's going to be a first order correction to E1 and E2, because uh, there's a perturbation that connects the two. There's an overlap of between psi 2 and psi 1 with an h in the middle. So there'll be a first order correction to those energy levels. But there won't, there won't be a term involving E3 and E2, because there isn't a guy that connects them. But there is one that connects E3 to E1 and E1 to E2. So at second order, there'll be a contribution.
hopefully that'll I don't know that, that confused more people than it helped but if it helped one person we'll come back to this later on okay so I wanted to finish up on Bose condensation so last time we calculated the critical temperature for helium and it came out very close to the real answer but uh, we neglected all the interactions between the helium atoms, even though it's in a fluid. So it's kind of surprising that it works so well. So for a long time, uh, people wanted to check Bose condensation in a system where things were actually had very small interactions between them. So in 2001, these guys got the Nobel Prize for, I think they took rubidium atoms in a trap so it was just a gas of rubidium atoms and they can control the density in their trap. And then they measured, this is a plot of the velocity distribution after they turn the trap off, everything flies apart. So above the critical temperature, there's just some random mess of velocities. But below the critical temperature, there's a peaked state, which uh, if you read their paper, convinces you that they've got significant fraction of the atoms all in the same quantum state, the lowest energy state in their trap. So, yeah. So you had said last class that with helium, or was it hydrogen that we translated helium. helium, that it was in its Bose-Einstein condensation state at that temperature, 2.17 Kelvin? Well, it's the critical temperature, so below that so it condenses. Below that, but I remember seeing ANOVA when they talked about this, these people's experiment and how they got their Bose-Einstein condensate. And they were taking it to like 10 to the negative multi-number like degrees Kelvin. Mm -hmm. Why did they need to go so much lower temperature than you would do in helium? And in helium, I know that once you take it down to that level, it becomes super fluid. But is that, is that Bose-Einstein condensation? Superfluid is a Bose-Einstein condensation. It's just that there are interactions, so it's more complicated than this picture where we neglected the interactions. But it's still, it's still all the at or a large fraction of the atoms being in the same quantum state, the lowest energy state. So did they and you can see from this formula that if the mass gets much bigger, the temperature has to get much smaller. So rubidium is much heavier than helium. reported in the press, but they made the first weekly interacting or almost non-interacting Bose-Einstein condensate. So it was the first time something was very close to non-interacting that was Bose had a Bose condensate. So then they didn't consider the liquid helium at those low temperatures really? Well, it's not a weekly interacting yeah. Bose condensate. So to describe it properly, you'd need to account for the interactions as well. So it's much more complicated theoretically. But well, so it's a question of what you call Bose condensate. Is it only the ones that are weakly interacting, or does it include anything where everything's condensed into the lowest energy state? That's uh, what did Bose and Einstein consider? Well, they only they could only do the mathematics for the case where there was no interactions. But if they have interactions and they still go into the lowest energy state, I would call that a Bose condensate. Um, if you've heard about the Higgs mechanism, the Higgs field does the same kind of thing. That's why we, particles have mass according to the standard model. And people don't always call it a Bose condensate just because people like to invent their own terms for everything. So they call it a vacuum expectation value. It's still the same thing. Okay, finally, we get to do time independent non degenerate perturbation theory. So we have a problem where the Hamiltonian is magically split into H0 and H prime. 
So H0, we get to choose what's, which part is called H0 and which part is called H prime. And we choose, call the thing H0 the part of the problem that we've already solved. So for example, we've already solved the square well. So if I put a little bump in my square well, then H0 would be the square well and H prime would be describing this little bump. And so we want to know what are the eigenstates of H and what are their eigenvalues, the energies. What we have are the eigenstates of H0 and their energies. So we'll put a zero on those. So what we're going to do is expand in powers of H prime. But H prime is an operator. And we're not used to doing Taylor series and operators. So we'll put in lambda here. And we'll expand in powers of lambda. Lambda is just something we made up to make it easy to expand in powers of an operator. So every time there's a lambda, that secretly means there's one power of h prime. There's a lambda squared, and then secretly there's really h prime squared. But we only have to keep track of the lambdas until we get things sorted out. And once we have everything sorted out, we can forget about lambda, because it's just something we made up. So this is what we want. This is what we have. And this is what we know. We know that these eigenstates are orthogonal because if they have different eigenvalues, eigenstates with different eigenvalues are always orthogonal, and we always get to normalize them. So if they're the same, then they're, we've normalized them so their overlap is one. And uh, we're assuming that every eigenstate has its own eigenvalue. No two eigenstates have the same eigenvalues. That's non-degenerate. To handle the case where there's two states with the same energies, it takes more work. We're saving that for next week after you're recovering from the exam, maybe. So all we have to do is Taylor expand in H prime and look at the lowest order terms. And we do that with this fake parameter lambda. So we'll say that the exact solution is the unperturbed solution plus a first order correction. I'll put a 1 in the superscript to remind us that it's first order. So secretly, somehow, this has to involve one power of h prime. That's why this lambda is here, to tell us that there's one power of h prime. And there's a 1 up there, which also tells us there's one order of h prime. So there's no possible way we can be confused because we're keeping track of it twice. Then there's a second order correction, and so on. And we'll also write the energies as an expansion. So there's a first order correction to the energy, second order correction to the energy. Now we just have to plug this into this formula for the exact result. So the total Hamiltonian is H0 plus lambda H prime. That's acting on this wave function. That's equal to the energy times the wave function. So that's the full Gorey mess. We 
We expanded everything we could see in powers of H prime or lambda. Now we just collect all the terms that have the same order. So there are terms that have no factors of lambda. H naught psi n naught equals E n naught psi n naught. So that's good. Because that's the thing that we already solved. So if that hadn't come out, then we would have made a mistake. Because that relation is our starting point. And there are terms that involve one power of lambda. So there's an H naught psi n1 plus an H prime psi n0. Everyone see where I got those? It's an H naught psi n1 and an H1 psi n0. And on the right hand side, we have an En0 times psi n1 and En1 psi n0. And then there are some lambda squared terms. two terms for that because our Hamiltonian stops at first order in lambda. So there's no H2 term by construction. Yeah? So why are we, ta are we tailored expanding our Hamiltonian also? And that's why we have our... Well, we define, we define this lambda by saying this piece is order lambda. And that's the definition of lambda. So there's no okay. lambda squared term. So this right here, though, our energies, we're, um, uh, we only took it up to the second order right here. Did you just There's not put it down? Plus dot dot dot. Okay. On those guys. There's a plus dot 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 there. So on the right-hand side, we'll have EN0 psi N2 plus EN1 psi N1 plus EN2 n zero. And now we've got all these equations and they don't have any lambdas in them because we've factored them out. Because we've equated powers of lambda. So now we can forget about lambda. So we could have just written this down directly if we knew that these superscripts tell us that this is secretly has a first order h prime in it. And this secretly has h prime squared. That's what the superscript is telling us. So if you don't like the lambdas, you can just go from there to here directly. But some people, how many people like lambdas? Nobody. I will. Four people, five people like lambdas. Okay. So let's look at our first order equation. We've already solved this equation. So next we solve the first order equation. So let's take an inner product. We've got a psi n0 on the right hand side there. Let's take an inner product with psi n0. So there's a psi n0, h0, psi n1. Psi n zero, h one, psi n zero. On the right, we have two terms: e n zero, psi n zero, psi one, n one, plus e n one, psi n zero, psi n zero. So one reason we picked to take an inner product with psi n zero is that we knew that. This last term is going to simplify because this is just one, this inner product. And I wrote this, I can write this either way because H naught is Hermitian, so we can write it between the kets, or we can act it, write it acting on between the bra and the ket, or acting on the ket, or acting on the bra.
write it acting on the bra, then we made our life easy because this is an eigenstate of that Hamiltonian, and we know its energy. order correction to the energy is the expectation value in that state of the <coughs> perturbation Hamiltonian. So that's what Griffiths calls the most useful equation in quantum mechanics. It's pretty useful. Because now, given any crazy correction to your system, you can estimate what the correction to the energy levels were. So if you're interested in the effect of the moon on the hydrogen spectrum, you could put in the gravitational potential of the moon and calculate the correction to the energy level and verify that it's extremely small, so you probably don't care. But if it was something more subtle, you could check and see how big the correction would be for a particular state and see whether you need to take care of it or not. sine 1 here, and a sine 0 there, and a sine 0 there. So let's uh, bring things to opposite sides. So we've got all the sine 1s on one side and all the sine zeros on the other side. And we have peak 0 minus pn 0 sine 1 is minus peak 1 minus en 1 sine 0. And then let's write the first order correction as a sum of the unperturbed wave functions. So why are we allowed to do that? Because our wave functions form a complete eigenbasis for all possible wave functions. So just like we can write a vector in terms of three numbers, we can write a function, any function, in terms of the coefficients times the, our eigenbasis of functions. So this complete set of eigenfunctions gives us a complete eigenbasis for any possible wave function. And then we're going to put in the restriction that m is not equal to n. <coughs> There's two reasons why we're doing that. First reason is that in this equation, if we kept the term with psi n, then we would just get en0 minus en0. So keeping that term is not going to add anything to our equation. It's just to contribute 0, so it's useless. The other reason is that when we wrote out, when we expanded our wave function, we already had sine zero in it. So we've already got that piece, so it's not going to help anyway. What we need is how much is mixed in of all the other guys. So let's plug this into there. unperturbed Hamiltonian acting on the unperturbed wave function will just give us the energy. Mm -hmm. 
let's take an inner product with another arbitrary eigenstate. Let's take it with psi L. possible cases. So if L equals N, then this guy is 1. And if L equals N, this guy is 0. If L equals n, En is just a number. So that's an overlap of psi n with psi n, which is 1. We're taking L equals n. So miraculous, miraculously, that's actually the equation we just had. Right? The first order energy is the expectation value. Perturbation Hamiltonian in that state. So we didn't know that overlap. What about when L is not equal to N? If L is not equal to N, then this will only will be non-zero if L is equal to M. This is delta L M. L0 minus EN0 times CL. And then over here, when L is not equal to N, the term with the energy, the number in here, this overlap will be 0 because L is not equal to N for this piece. We'll just have the Hamiltonian part. for the coefficients in our expansion.
So we've calculated the first order energy and the first order wave function correction. So it looks like it's time for a practical example, or a simple example at least. So let's go back to our square well. spike in the middle, delta function spike. So the lowest order wave function was that. If I put a repulsive spike in the middle, what's going to happen to the wave function? Any guesses? Should go down. If I put an attractive delta function spike, it should go up. That's, you guys understand quantum mechanics. <laughs> so now we'd just like to be a little more precise. How much does it change? So, our perturbation Hamiltonian will write like this. So the width of the square well is A, and alpha is the height of our delta function. Our unperturbed wave functions are sine functions. They're labeled by some integer n. So it's sine of n pi x over a. So the first order energy correction, the expectation value, perturbation Hamiltonian in that state. So I need to take an overlap of this wave function with an h prime in the middle. So I'll get 2 over a square root squared. I'll get an alpha. And then there's an integral of x from 0 to a. Sine squared n pi x over a delta x minus a over 2. We have the same wave function twice, and it's just multiplying this. It's not a differential operator, so it just gets squared. And it's, we've chosen the phases, so it's not even complex. So life is life is good. Well, it will be after midterms are over. So uh, this is an integral that we know how to do. We'll be we just have to put x equals a in here. So we get 2 alpha over a sine squared n pi a. Well, x is a over 2. So the a's will cancel. <coughs> we'll get sine squared n pi over 2. So if n is 1, that's the lowest guy get sine squared pi over 2, it's 1. If n is 2, we'll get sine of pi, that's 0. If n is 3, we'll get 1, 4, 0. So we get 1 if n is odd and 0 if n is even. So now we'll calculate the wave function. First order corrections, the wave function for the ground state. Um, sum over all the wave functions not equal to n equals 1. So k is my, I'm going to call it k, the thing I'm summing over. And we're doing it for the ground state, which has n equals 1. So our formula. I'd take the overlap for equation Hamiltonian between the two states divided by the energy difference.
know that we only have to sum over odd values of k. Because the this thing energy eigenvalues were p squared over 2m. sine 3 pi x over a since sine 5 pi x over a and so clearly that's exactly what we expected in our this right sum up that series for some choice of alpha, you indeed find for your pulse and delta function, summing up the series, you get a dip. But because you had to, prob we still have to normalize the wave function. So if we push it down in here, it has to go up out here. And with the attractive delta function, it goes up in the middle, then it has to go down out here. of alpha. I forget what. I chose some alpha to make the picture look pretty. <laughs> but uh, you guys have Mathematica, right? You have Mathematica? No. Hmm? <laughs> you have plotting software of some kind? You can plot the series for your own choice of alpha. See how it changes. 
is great because we have four minutes to do second order perturbation theory. Everyone's convinced that for this first order thing worked. We knew what the answer had to be, we got the right answer. So, our second order equation. terms where the sum of the superscripts is 2. Take an inner product with cyan again. this energy is and we know what this first order wave function is.
episode, I almost forgot, secret cram session next Tuesday at 9.30 to 10.30. Location to be determined because they haven't given me a room yet. And it's a cram session because it's crammed in between your ENM exam and your quantum exam. <laughs> so we can go over the last year's midterm if you guys want or whoever shows up can decide what we're doing. Anyone looked at last year's midterm yet? On Sunday. Oh. Sunday. I thought, I thought everyone's going to wait until after the you know, exam. That's why the cram session has to be on oh, Tuesday. This weekend will be a superposition of quantum study. Then you'd be a quantum computer. Yeah. You'd solve two problems simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when was that overview session? 9.30 on Tuesday. <laughs> Tuesday. Okay. So by Monday we should have a review. Okay.